0: You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions, or even the answers, are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney. And because my trusty co-host, Ben, is out on pre-paternity leave, you've just got me again this week. Well, I guess you have me in the head cold that is probably raping my vocal cords right now, but it's me nonetheless. And so I want to give you a rundown of what we're going to be talking about today. So first of all, we started an interview with the author from Unchurching last week. And that'll be the first thing we do is get to the second part of that interview. And then after that, I want to have a little heart to heart about our dear America. So here we go to the rest of the Unchurching interview. And I think you're right. And especially even talking about the children of Israel wandering around the desert, there was, you know, there was a group of them that had to die off, you know, before you were even able to enter the promised land. And so I think that even like how you're speaking to it, I think there's part of ourself that has to die off yes. um, in that we have to kind of be able to let go of certain things that, you know, and, and any time that we go through a process of having things die off, it's not fun. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but the other side of it, you know, there's there's a lot more freedom to it. And, and I think and I want you to speak into this thought, too, because we're talking about the structures of the institutional church. And, you know, I think one of the issues is that this isn't even really about their structure. But I think if we talk about how we sell Jesus to people in the institutional church, that it's simply you just pray a prayer and boom, Jesus is in your life and everything will, will be better. Uh, which when you look at scripture, it's quite the contrary uh, when we're talking about what it meant to follow after Jesus. And so I think for a long time, what we've done is we've made a soft sell of Christianity and we've kind of sold people a raw bill of goods um, of what really the Christian life looks like. And, um, I don't know, because I, I, I think it requires so much of us and the, the way that oftentimes in the institutional church that we talk about it, we're making it seem like it's just a small thing. It's an easy thing. It's something that just benefits us like uh, whitening in our toothpaste. You know what I mean? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, and the perfect example of what you're talking about, you can see it in Jesus's own ministry. He reached a place where he was a rock star. Um, He had uh, a following that would make a lot of megachurch pastors jealous. You know, we know he had thousands and thousands of people following him when he, when he fed the multitudes, you know, it talks about feeding 5,000, but very often the way they did that head count is they were counting the men because it was mm-hmm. very pa- patriarchal society. So, you know, it could be 5,000 plus women plus children. So we're talking thousands and thousands potentially. And, That's that's a that's a a stadium sized church if it Mm -hmm. if it were a church. But, you know, I I don't think it was
1: a church. Um, I do believe they had fog machines and laser light shows. Laser lights. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so what's amazing is Jesus performs this miracle and he feeds everybody. And when they see that, they go, oh, my gosh, this is it. Um, and you can hear it in the the dialogue that follows because they engage him in this dialogue talking about, well, you know, Moses fed the Israelites in the desert for 40 years. Um, hint, hint. And I think mm-hmm. what they were saying is, let's just do this. It's kind of like when Peter saw Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop and said, "Hey, let's just stay here. Let's build three mm-hmm. three houses and let's just camp here." I think they were saying something similar, like, "Let's keep doing this. You keep teaching us and feeding us, and we'll just quit our jobs and follow you around and listen to you teach." <laughs> well, who wouldn't buy into that? Like, yeah. that's that's incredible. Like, that would be a, a a really sweet way to spend your time. Well, Jesus being who he is, said, hey, I got a different deal for you. How about this? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part of me. He's like, you want something to eat? I'll give you something to eat. <laughs> and here's the thing. We have the benefit of hindsight. We understand that he's speaking metaphorically. We understand that he's foreshadowing his sacrifice. But that having that context actually works against us when we read this story because they had none of that. And you can see it in their response. They said, what? Mm-hmm. Some people just went, well, that's silly. And they said things like, well, how is this man going to give us his flesh to eat? Like that's, you know, logistically, that's stupid. Um, others went for the spiritual implication. Like, hey, we know that God called us away from all those pagan nations who do human sacrifice and drink blood. And they got incensed. They called Jesus a blasphemer. And, you know, they got furious. Like, Like, we know better. Bottom line is, nobody heard that the way that he meant it, and he did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. He did it on purpose because if they were really interested in him, then the fact that they didn't understand what he was saying, I'm not saying it wouldn't be an issue, but it wouldn't be a deal breaker. And so you see thousands of people walk away from him, and then he turns to the disciples. He doesn't explain himself, he just puts them on the spot and he says, So, what about you? Peter says one of the most honest things in all of scripture. He says, this is a hard teaching. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Who can understand it? So Peter is saying, what you just said offends everything I've ever been taught. Nonetheless, you have the words of life. And so we're going to follow you. Mm -hmm. How phenomenal was that for them when they finally reached that upper room and Jesus says, he grabs the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the wine. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. There must have been a sigh of relief mm-hmm. <laughs> when yeah. they went, oh, good. <laughs> I had no idea what was on the menu tonight. Um, you know, that's, that's when I'm sure they got part of the revelation of what he had been talking about. Anyway, that was the long way of me saying, <laughs> can you imagine? Doing anything that controversial or provocative Mm -hmm. with your megachurch congregation that is paying the bills for the building and the lights, the utilities, the, the pastoral staff, and so on. We don't have the freedom to imitate Jesus in this church model. We could never do anything that would really shake people to the core like that. Uh, because the bank would come after us uh, because we're still beholden to them to pay off that building. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's it, what ends up happening, especially in those situations. It's like the overhead, the, you know, the buildings, the staffing, all of that, it ends up changing the actual mission of the church because you end up having to, well, I mean, it, it, it becomes a huge weight. On you it becomes something that you end up chasing after. we have to maintain this, we have to grow this, and even like you'd even said earlier, which I thought I thought was a it was a great idea that I was kind of connecting a few bits of what you were saying, you know, even when you begin to look at the smaller church because we were equating smaller church to uh, a more intimate environment, but for us to be successful, we have to grow it, and so that's kind of diametrically opposed to discipleship and um and being able to really grow community well, if we have to say, this has to be bigger, we need more money, we have to do all of this. And all of that kills intimacy. Um, and if we have don't have the intimacy, I'm not really sure what we have anymore. I, I think what
2: we have is a blending of the crowd and the congregation when, when we do church this way, when we do church within the organized church model. If you look at Jesus's ministry, he had a public ministry, he had a private ministry, and he delineated between the two. You know, he told his disciples plainly, you know, the secrets of the kingdom are revealed to you not to them. That is not to say he did not minister to the multitudes mm-hmm. and love the multitudes. You know, he fed them, he healed them. I mean, he performed all these incredible miracles, you know, for them, um, not just as a witness, but I mean, he, he performed miracles on them, um, incredible things that he did. However, he never ever mixed up uh, who was part of the crowd, who was part of the congregation. You know, mm-hmm. there's a verse that talks about. He didn't need the testimony of any man because he knew what was in the heart of men. And even though, um, he is the good shepherd, you know, there's verses where he talks about, he longed, um, to gather them, uh, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wing because the people were like sheep without a shepherd. He, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, um, did not relate to them as their shepherd, uh, that was the ultimate goal so so don 't mishear me that yes mm-hmm. jesus is is the shepherd of all believers but i 'm saying at that time he understood his priority uh was these twelve men uh, that were going to continue this ministry. What we do is I think we put a roof over the crowd and the congregation. We substitute um, membership for discipleship. Anyone who attends a church Mm -hmm. begins to think they are members of a church. And it's not about being a member. It's about being a disciple. And then now that we have this large auditorium to seat all of these people so that we can preach the gospel at them, we've essentially crowdsourced our ministry. You know, we, we need the crowd. Um, to continue to attend our services so that they can pay for the building, mm-hmm. and it's very very hard to crowdsource
1: without lapsing into crowd pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and one thing you talked about too in the book in the book, and so I, I it, it was this connection between like humility and obedience, and. Why do you think that was one? Those are things that kind of went out the window in church. Because it's it's funny to talk because we talk about we read through scripture and you'll probably hear this preached on Sundays about love, forgiveness, grace, all this other kind of stuff. Um, So we talk about stuff well, we don't actually do it well. And so what what in your mind, like where did humility and obedience? We know at what point? How did it leave the church? Why are these things that we don't see characterized more and more in the church today?
2: Well, you know, I think I think it's a systemic issue. Like, I don't don't think what's really, uh, you know, very often the people suffer the brunt of the criticism. You know, um, I was listening to uh, part of a podcast the other day where they were talking about some of these things and they they were specifically criticizing uh, pastors, you know, like. You know, and talking about you know their hearts not being right, and you know mm. not not having their priorities correct, and that stuff breaks my heart when I hear that, because um, I think we're misplacing the blame. You know, we we you know people need to care more, and people need to be more devout, and mm. people need to, you know, and it, and we make these comparisons like our grandparents were real Christians, and then you know, <laughs> t- today's believers are slackers, and that's terrible. Um, that's absolutely terrible. What we have are systemic problems. If I went to a workshop where they were going to give lectures on swimming. Let's say I don't know how to swim. And I attend weekly lectures on swimming Hmm. and then take that information that makes perfect sense intellectually and go jump in a lake. I'm going to drown. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what we've done is we have – made this church model where it is all about disseminating information instead of being a true uh, spiritual community, a daily community, not a a weekly support group. We don't have a genuine spiritual community that's all all about formation. You know, you you don't produce um, um, these mature Christian believers by just giving them information. Um, You know, you have to walk with one another day to day because it's mm-hmm. it's really the in the moment stuff where the dots get connected. You know, hearing a story or hearing a sermon where somebody says, you know, here's these three principles for how to handle conflict. Well, that's great and it makes sense, but in the moment, in the heat of conflict, do you go, oh, let me, <laughs> step let me one, step one, yeah, yeah you, you don't do that. So what happens is somebody with you. Who's also heard that message and trying to live, you know, those principles can either call you on it in the moment or call you afterward and go, hey, so how do you think you did Uh, when you look at when you think about uh, what we agreed to, like, like, how well did you do? And that's where the
1: transformation starts to take Mm. place. Well, I've, I've got just a few more questions for you. And one of those things is that, you know, I know through the majority of this conversation, we've been very heartfelt and sincere, but the show is called Snarky Faith. So um, <laughs> if, if I'm allowed to let you switch your hats for a moment, because um, we can only take so much sincerity. Jeez, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, what are three things that absolutely tick you off about the institutional church? Um, it could be more. It could be less. Yeah,
2: absolutely. The I, I tell you the the biggest frustration for me in having this conversation. I don't know if this directly answers your question. Mm-hmm. It is the fact that we don't separate the church model from the church community. Mm. When I start having these conversations online, um, you know, I have a lot of conversations on social media, a lot of critics think that I'm attacking the church because they don't separate the model from the people. Mm -hmm. If I were, if I were criticizing the education system, people would praise me as an advocate for teachers and students. They would say, man, this guy really cares about teachers and students because he's, you know, railing against the system and trying to make it better for the people. But we don't do that with church when even though uh, i try to use very clear language where i'm where i'm separating the two it doesn't matter um, often people feel like i am attacking the bride of christ i'm attacking my brothers hmm. and sisters so that's one
1: of my big frustrations
2: and i know that probably wasn't a snarky enough answer
0: no it works uh, it's good
2: <laughs> but I, I was
1: just i was trying to get a little bit of like you know richard unfiltered so this is yeah,
2: good well here's the thing if you really want to see some of that
1: my cartoons can be pretty snarky. Yes, I, I enjoy uh, them. What kind of, I, as you've done this, because I know that, like when we were talking, I think before this started, you were talking about just how this whole thing has kind of really exploded um, around you. What kind of, what is some of the pushback that you've gotten from folks?
2: Um, it's various things. You know, what's interesting is, you know, sometimes it's the topic itself. You know, sometimes, you know, people really, um, get offended when you start talking about having uh, no pastors, uh, for one thing, and, and I'm not saying there's no leadership. I'm just saying this idea of the senior pastor is is wholly unbiblical. Boy, does that offend some people. So I get I get uh, backlash for certain things that I'm saying in the book. What's interesting though. You know, it's because everybody's just coming from their own personal perspective on things. Mm -hmm. You know, I get called on things that I never expected to have conversations about. Uh, Some people have been offended um, at what translation I used when (laughs) I quoted quoted scripture. And yeah, and I mean, it's, but that's important to them. You know, they've, they've done all of this research and concluded that, you know, one uh, version of the Bible is more sound it's more close to the original text than the others and you know they they could even argue that there might be some agenda in mistranslating the oh, scripture well. in, the, in these other versions so you know they'll engage me in those conversations um I had a uh a, a follower on social media who was calling me out the other day and he was doing it privately. So I have to, have to commend him for that, that he was trying to be respectful in the way he approached it, that he wasn't, you know, calling me out in a public forum, but he was actually frustrated with the amount of praise that the book was getting. And he, <laughs> he insinuated that I was curating people's comments. Oh, and- really? Well, and first of all, there is too many comments for me to police. Like, yeah. like if I were, if I were going to spend my time doing that, there wouldn't be any time to do that. But you know, I pointed out like you can go through the thread and see terrible things that people have said to me. Like one person, and this was his word, not mine, so don't don't you know send me hate mail for this. But one person said this guy must be retarded. Uh, another person said this guy's going to hell. Um, you know, like like there are detractors for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but in spite of that, and it's that's a very vocal minority. The thing that's blown me away is the number of people who have responded well to it. I think there's kind of an underground of believers who are currently going to organize churches out of obligation. Um, I don't think they they think it's ideal. I think a lot of them are frustrated. I think if there were an alternative. A lot of them would jump ship tomorrow. I think it's kind of like the emperor's new clothes. I think you have mm-hmm. a lot of people thinking the same thing and they just need somebody to stand up and articulate what they're feeling. And that's what I get. You know, I did a book giveaway uh, for about five days uh, just to, you know, get the word out. Cause you know, I'm an independent author. No, nobody knows this book exists unless they stumble across me on social media. So I was like, you know, let me just do a book giveaway of of the Kindle version and get my social media followers to tell all their friends that thing exploded. Um, I posted a video it got two hundred shares it The video reached over twenty four thousand people uh thirteen thousand people actually watched the video, which mm-hmm. blew my mind. The book got thousands and thousands of downloads it's still getting downloads, even though the promotion is over. Um, it broke into the top one hundred um And that's all genres. Mm -hmm. So I was competing against romance novels and thrillers and mysteries and what have you. Um, It was the top 10 in religion and spirituality. It was number one in its subcategory, which is uh, church ministry and leadership. And I'm not saying all this to point back to me, and I hope it doesn't sound like this. What I'm pointing to when I say all this is the amount of people who are hungry Mm -hmm. to be validated in their frustrations um, about the organized church. They need. Not not me per se. They just need someone to say you're not crazy for feeling the way you do, for thinking the way you do. It's Mm. not all in your head. Um, And it's incredible. Like I'm getting emails daily from people in uh, so many countries like the U.S., Canada, U.K., Nigeria, South Africa, uh, Japan, Indonesia, uh, Australia, Netherlands, Scotland. And I wrote this book, you know, just in my little mind, I was envisioning an American audience. I didn't Mm -hmm. think half of it would apply, um, you know, outside the U.S. Because I use terms like, and I don't use many, but when I talk about a 501c3 nonprofit, well, that only makes sense if you're in the U.S. You can understand it from context. Mm -hmm. But I, I wasn't thinking this would be an international sort of message. And apparently it is. Apparently this frustration is deeply felt and it's pretty wide.
1: So um, if people are wanting to look for this book, uh, you can find this at any Lifeway bookstore. Is that?
2: <laughs> I see what you did there. Okay. Uh, you, The only place you can find it is on amazon.com uh, okay. right now.
1: Well, so if folks are looking to get the book, to listen to the podcast, you can go to unchurching.com. This has been Richard Jacobson. So Richard, I just appreciate you I appreciate your time and your journey and just thanks so much for being on the show today.
2: Oh, thank you, Stuart. It's it's really a pleasure.
1: Now, moving on, I wanted to kind of sit down and have that little chat with you, America. I wanted us to have a little bit of a talk about what the heck is going on where we find ourselves at post-election. And I'll start off by telling a story of something that happened to me over the weekend. So I'm chaperoning my daughter's trip, which is also probably the reason I have a cold right now. Getting six hours of sleep collectively over the weekend doesn't do a great thing for your immune system. So we're at this event, and I will tell you, this is one of the regular generic Christian type events. You know, the kind that in a certain sense seem to be about God, but also seem to be about making money. Those kind of events, which is pretty much all of the big Christian conferences out there. Uh, You have your healthy dose of selling, and then you have your minimal dose of spirituality within it. So we're at this event. Now, this is just for middle school and high school students. And one of the traditions of this event is that the students, this is like, I think, a 10-year-old tradition they have going in here, is that students like to write down messages on clothespins and clip it to other kids Now, in the past, it's been used. I mean, I think the adults would like to tell you it's about encouraging things. It's like about giving little verses that make people feel good about themselves and encouraging folks who are clipping it to. But if you know teenagers in any capacity, you know this is a tool for them to be able to talk with each other, to network, to hook up. Maybe not hook up, but also find uh, members of the opposite sex that they find appealing. And so what a lot of this has turned into is they'll end up putting their, their Snapchat, their Instagram, their Facebook, their Twitter handles on these and clip it to somebody else as they walk by without them knowing. And so the other kid will find it and go, oh, hey, and then accordingly connect with that person. The first part of my weekend really was surmised by that. But what had happened at this event, which is done by a major denomination, was that a group of Latino students got clipped to them several clothespins that said, we love Trump and build a wall. Now I will move forward talking to you in a manner telling you this is, and I'm going to kind of deconstruct this. This is kind of what we would call the anatomy of a cluster, beep, a cluster, fill in the blank. You know what I'm saying? I can't say it on the radio, but you fill in the blank for yourself. And so what had happened is you have these Latino students coming to this event. And again, we're in North Carolina. So you have a fair mix of what I would call delicately the rednecks. And then you have the rest of the state gets kind of participating in part of this. And so, of course, you know, this is a horrible remark. Because when we begin to look at a lot of the minority issues that are happening post-election... One of the groups that is most terrified, that is most living in fear right now, is the Latino community. And I, and I don't think that can be really understated about how much right now many of them are living in fear. Because you have the Don, who has been throwing, I wouldn't call them truth bombs, but they are bombs he's been throwing around verbally throughout the entire election process. And because of that, he's used some fairly distinctive, some fairly racially charged statements over the course of this. And why not? Uh, why not would any community be able to feel like they are on the precipice, on the verge of being majorly persecuted? So again, let's just feed that into being the baseline of what is happening. That That's kind of what's happening under the currents uh, of the system. And so after this event happened, the organizers of this decided to get up in front in a very, again, totalitarian state uh, and tell the kids that even though this has been a long tradition, that we are shutting this down. And as one of my students put it, they told us that uh, this was simply we were going to enter into a covenant to shut this down. And the student asked me, uh, she said, isn't a covenant something that all parties have to agree on? Now, she wasn't speaking to this in regards to the racism. She was just speaking to this in regards to the fact that the adults were really hijacking the narrative of what was going on. And one of the things I want to talk to you about this is when we are in this post-election state, I think that all of us as parents need to be having conversations with our kids about sensitivity, but also equipping them with tools to be able to to really kind of figure out where we are at in the world today. I think too often as parents, we can go down the road of lecturing. We tell kids what to think, what to do, and we don't let them figure it out or process it on their own. And so first and foremost, I think the fact that this kind of totalitarian regime uh, coming down on basically 5,000 teenagers did not go over well. So that's stage one, something that was kind of innocuous, something that was, that was insensitive and, and by and large, I mean, I would say stupid that a kid did to another kid, but as you've seen a lot of times with teenagers, they don't always think these things out. So step one was to inflame the situation. They did what a typical adult did is shut it down and just push the whole thing through. So what happens later that day um, in, in an act of wanting to bring some sort of a sensitivity and solidarity. So first of all, I'm not even saying that some of the intent behind what was going on was wrong. I just think it was extremely misguided. And so what happens then is later in this, they brought up a bunch of they brought up a Latino leader. They brought up a bunch of Latino students and then proceeded to talk about why all of this was wrong. Now, it was wrong, and I'm not disagreeing with the statements they made. But you also have to realize uh, from the past elections, you can begin to see that our nation is fairly fragmented. We are very much drawn down the line in where people are at, from Republican to Democrat. And so in this explanation, in this educational setting, um, as I think they would believe it to be, they proceeded to make a bunch of statements about the people in the audience that were wearing the red Make America Great Again hats. I disagree uh, with wholeheartedly with actually pretty much all of what the red hat folks believe in, but I do respect the fact that they have the right to believe what they want. They have the right to vote the way they want because after all, this is America. And so as they proceed to do this, all of the adult leaders that were, I would say, not all, but a lot of the adult leaders that were part of the Red Hat ilk proceeded to get up and take their entire student groups with them and leave. And see, this is the point in the situation. I would assume the folks that were organizing this um, had the great idea because if there's a fire going on, we want to put it out. Except really what began to happen in this, uh, they were trying to put a fire out with kerosene. And it only made it worse. And so then you have this scene where you have probably, I would say close to, I don't know, a fifth uh, of the groups in this area are marching out. And then they thought it was a good idea to just move on, like nothing was wrong. You see, this is the problem that we are facing in Christianity in America today, is the fact that, that we're so consumed in many ways with doing business as usual. That we want to grab onto social justice issues, but we don't want to give them really the space to breathe. We don't want to give them the space uh, where we can wrestle and we can dialogue them out. This was a gargantuan, this was a huge missed opportunity. And so in my opinion, if we have this issue, which again, I agree that there was an issue here. I think it was a small one that was done by a bunch of dumb, idiotic students. But then what we did is that we went and engaged the adults in the crowd, and the adults in the crowd seemed to take over the situation. If we want to say that we are the church, that we are the Christian family, we should be able to have a family talk in the midst of all of this. And this was not a family talk. And after you've gone and offended a great number of people in there, you don't go back to saying, all right, now that we've said that, let's just go ahead and worship together. We are absolutely missing the point in this. And I think one of the great sins of the church today is the fact that we are not willing to put in the hard work to be able to wrestle through these social issues. I mean, this one had to do with a minority group, um, the Latinos uh, in this space, but it could have very well been the LGBTQ crowd. It could have well been everything else. And the thing would have panned out in the exact same way. Like I'd said earlier, I think one problem that we do especially when we look at our own children is that we don't allow them the space to process and to wrestle through and when we don't do that oftentimes what will happen is the students will begin to parrot what the parents believe they will do it in a way that's almost like when people decide to get all of their news and information through social media channels you're you're getting all of your information through biased media. And then you make a very thin opinion, but you move on it like it's a very uh, weighty opinion that you have taken the time to wrestle out. And they did not do that there. And I think they missed a gargantuan opportunity. And I will tell you, uh, in doing that, they are going to be dealing with a headache from many, many churches for weeks and months to come. You see, America... We have to learn to be able to wrestle well with one another. Now, so many people have been caught up post-election with being upset about so many things. And we've seen this, we've seen this, you know, I brought up the situation of what's going on here uh, at a church conference, but we're seeing this happen in similar ways all over the country. There are protests, there are fighting, there is blaming, there is plenty of blaming. And that's the other thing that has been to bother me in this season, is that we are as a culture looking to point the finger to blame everybody about why the situation got here. I mean, there are some of us out there that really wanted a Trump presidency, but there are many, many of us that did not want this. There are many of us that want to continue to fight that now. And I will go back to saying this, and I posted something on our website last week about why we should vote, but it bears repeating again. I believe that voting is the absolute minimum that we are called to do. I believe that it requires very little of us But even though it requires very little of us, we still need to go out and do it. But what do we do now that the voting booths are closed? What do we do now that some of us may have a sour, foul taste in our mouth for what the results gave us? Well, if you were upset about this, to go out and protest and to yell and to scream, don't really do anything. Now, I know we feel disaffected. I know that we are upset about what shook out. But I think we have to pause and we have to take a moment and begin to reflect on what brought us here. I think we need to begin to reflect on what actions we need to do moving forward, because I feel like this ends up being like any sporting event that you watch. You know, if your team is winning and there's bad calls in the game, you rarely actually complain or bitch or moan about it. But when your team loses and there are bad calls in the game, that's all that you'll hear about. The refs botched this one up. The refs stole this game. But the funny thing is, and and I've got kids that are fantasy football little geniuses, and they love watching football. And I've heard this over and over again. Oh my gosh, this game was botched by the refs because of this one play or these two plays here. But the thing that we have to remember in sports. And I also believe that it will actually, it fits in politics too. The game is never lost on a play. The game is never lost on a few plays. Because when you look at this, if I'm going to use a football metaphor here, there's four quarters to play in a game. And if your team is down at the end of the game and something doesn't go your way, guess what? They had three other quarters to score and get ahead. And I think the same can be said with this election. Now, if you're out there and you're upset that Hillary didn't win, stop blaming the media. Stop blaming other people. Because I think a lot of this rests on the shoulders of the person that didn't win. I think this rests a lot on the fact that, uh, in a lot of stuff I've been reading, the entire middle of the country was ignored by the Democratic Party. And when you ignore large swaths of our population, it is going to come back and bite you. And we are in a position right now where our country is deeply divided and we need to move towards healing. We need to move towards reconciliation. We need to move towards a place where we can actually move on and not continue to increase the void, increase doing damage between us and our neighbors uh, in this country. I think we need to get back to the posture of listening. Because when we look over the course of the entire election, it was so divisive. It was so polarizing. And the candidates, by and large, did little to offer us a viable role, a viable step towards change. What happened towards the end of it, it was simply just people attacking people. And what are we left with? We're left with the fact that Hillary and Trump, I believe, made the fracture between uh, folks in the United States deeper and uglier and dirtier. And much like I'd mentioned earlier about teenagers par- uh, parroting their parents, I feel like a lot of us in different parties are parroting the folks that we were following. For us to move forward, for us to heal, for us to see positive change, I think we need to learn to listen well. I think we need to learn to engage in dialogue with one another. I think we need to learn to respect people that don't believe the same way we do. And I'll paraphrase this, but I thought it was a brilliant statement that Trevor Noah from The Daily Show said. And he said something along the lines of, when we're protesting, we have to become very careful that the anger and the hate that we're protesting against doesn't become an anger and hate in us. And I'm seeing that. If the election would have gone the other way, I believe we would have been seeing protests and people burning stuff and craziness. We were stuck in the middle of a no win situation. And I believe we as Americans let it happen. And now I'm not talking about how we let this happen in the voting booth. I think that it's about how we let this happen by becoming part of the system. We engaged in divisive talk. We engaged in finger pointing. We engaged in name calling. We engaged in so many things that turned us ugly. We engaged in so many things that caused a deep rift and a deep divide. So many of us now have become so paranoid about the other. We become obsessed with demonizing folks that aren't like us. And if we want to become a great nation again, we need to find ways to heal the divide. We need to find ways to be able to listen and to collaborate and to cooperate and to have a dialogue between each other. And that's what I'm simply just saying about politics. Now, if I want to turn this in and begin to talk about the way the church is handling things, I will. Um, I had some conversation with clergy um, before and after the election. And one of the questions that kept coming up is, what do we do with our congregations now? Because people look like they've either won the lottery or they've gotten the wind knocked out of them. And in me speaking to the church, if me speaking towards what the church should aspire to be, I would say simply this. If you would say that you are a follower of Christ, someone that is trying to walk out the ways, the teachings, the principles, of a peaceful, nonviolent Jesus. We need to be throwing cold water on the faces of our congregation. After the election, did the world end? No, it didn't. Now, are many of us mad about how it shook out? Sure. Are many of us turning to throwing tantrums and being nasty and ugly? Sure. But if we proclaim to be people that want to be following the mold of a peaceful, nonviolent Jesus, we have to begin to realize that all of this stuff, that all of this that we have so wrapped ourselves up in, is actually antithetical to the gospel. When I begin to see people acting like somebody ran over their puppy post election, what I begin to ask myself is simply this. Have we, as Christians in America, have we become more comfortable putting our faith in the electoral process because we see change happen through that? Have we done that more so than putting our faith in the God that we believe in? Let that sink in for a moment. When we see these reactions, when we see people that are looking like they're in a fog, when we see people acting like their world is over, all because of an election it's almost like they've taken their eyes off of the entire point of why Jesus came. When we look at the scriptures, we see a Jesus that came to offer a different way. We see a Jesus who loved and cared for those that were marginalized, who cared for the people who were under the foot of the empire. And that message still hasn't changed. You know, we don't dump that message when we don't win. We don't dump that message when we do win. You see, what happens is, and I can go back to telling a story that happens in the New Testament, and it's one that whether you're Christian or or non-Christian, you've heard this story. There's a story where the disciples are going across um, this large sea, and a storm comes up, and they begin to panic, and they begin to scream, and they begin to assume that they're going to die. And then all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water. And this guy, this one of these disciples, Peter, looks out and says, hey, if this is really you, Jesus, walking on the water, can I come out to be with you? And Jesus says, come. And so Peter steps out onto the water and begins to walk. But then as he begins to look around, he sees the wind, he sees the waves. He begins to be terrified and react out of his terror. And in those moments, he begins to sink and call out, Jesus, save me. You see, when he took his eyes off what was important, the entire world fell into chaos. And I believe that's what has happened to Christians in America. Now, we've done this on many shows before. We've talked about how the political system in our culture has hijacked the faith that many of us profess to have. But I want to stop short. Because the others, I want to stop short of, of following this whole thought up. Because I've seen a lot of posts and I've seen a lot of people talking, and the response to this is, "Well, God's on the throne," as if that fixes everything. That somehow God is still in charge, even if Trump is in office, or God is still in charge even if Hillary would have been in office. And I hate remarks like that because I feel like they are a cast off. They're kind of a way of just washing off what has just happened. It doesn't allow us to process. It doesn't allow us to engage in our communities. It doesn't allow us to do anything besides isolating and insulating ourselves from the culture around us. You see, if we profess to follow after this Jewish man who claimed to be the son of God, who came and died for people, and whose goal was to heal the fracture, to heal the suffering that is going on in the world today, if we profess to follow Him, then this election, in so many ways, shouldn't matter. This election should not have changed the fact that we are called to go and make a difference in our community. Now, I'm not making, talking about making a difference like going and trying to shove tracts or Bibles into people's faces. I'm not talking about making a change like going out and trying to call out people's sin. I'm talking about the change that Christ modeled when he helped the hurting, when he healed those who were in pain, where he gave hope to the hopeless. You see, Christians, there should never be a time where you are putting your faith in the electoral process. Because Jesus came to announce that there was a different way to do things in life. He came to announce that there was an alternative kingdom There was an alternative ethic. There was an alternative narrative for how we walk on this earth that involved sacrifice, that involved humility, that involved us pouring ourselves out to help the common man. And I truly believe that we have been so much more caught up in this idea of the American dream and making Jesus some sort of thing that we can slip into our pocket and say, he is our personal Lord and savior. And he's here to essentially be like the genie that gives me all that I want and makes my life better. You see, that's a lie that's been fed by so many churches nowadays. In all actuality, the call to follow Jesus is a hard one. It's one where we are called to give all that we have. It could end up in death, But really what it is, it really calls us to crucify our pride, crucify our self-interest, crucify all of those things that make me point the finger at somebody else and say, I am right and you are wrong. I am better and you are worse. Because we have fallen into this whole narrative of tribalism where we go to our churches on a Sunday morning and we point fingers at those who are not like us. We point fingers at those who do stuff different than us. And the easy way to think about this is, in many ways, is that that Christians like to point out the flaws and the sins of those that are outside the church. But actually, they do that. But on a different level, they do that in and amongst other Christians. They have become fabulous at eating their own. And the only thing that we are really called to eat uh, in Christianity uh, comes at the Eucharist table where we are called to eat the bread and drink the wine and recognize that we need to be reconciled with God and our fellow man. So when we are in this place, we are in this season where everything seems and feels like chaos that still does not halt the call and the drive that we have to make the world better. We have titles like Make America Great Again. uh, And when we hear that, it's usually fueled by self-interest. Build myself up while I tear others down. But that is not the call of Jesus. We are called to make the world great again by pouring ourselves out, by helping those who are in need, by making a real and tangible difference. And when I say real and tangible, I mean something that makes an honest difference in your community. That doesn't mean you're learning Bible verses or spouting them out to other people. That doesn't mean you're spending so many hours in Bible study, pouring over facts and memorizing things. No, it means getting off your butts, getting out of the sanctuaries that you're in and going and investing your lives in other people, other people that are not like you. It is a call to love others. Unconditionally. When Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, in the scripture, what that means is not an actual neighbor, but it is anybody who is not us. And this is something that I think Christians have so much forgotten that we are called to love those that are not like us. We are called to love those that don't believe like us. We are called to love everyone. And the sad thing is, I don't see that happening. I don't see that happening in the churches. I don't see that happening outside the doors of our churches. But simply put, we are called to go and love. We are called to make a positive difference. We are called to go and listen to communities that are different than us. To sit across the table and be one with others that are different than us. We are called to be those types of change makers. When we see the example of Jesus, we see somebody who was willing to be killed and tortured all for others. And that is by far the most profound ethic of the gospel. And if we lose that, if we lose that, I'm not really sure what we have left besides organizations and buildings. But if you lose the heart, if you lose the mission, if you lose the mandate of the person that you're following after, you have something that becomes sick, you have something that becomes twisted, you have something that becomes bitter, and you have something that becomes evil. And I think that we are seeing that side of Christianity so much. It is so prolific today that we need, I mean, I think that we need to have a spiritual enema and cleanse ourselves of what is going on. When I look back to that conference that I went at, I just saw so many missed opportunities. Missed opportunities to let groups of marginalized people know that they are loved and that they are cherished and that they are lifted up. We have missed opportunities to educate the young people of America that if they are going to follow after Jesus, that they are called to love and that they are called to help others even if they don't like those people. And when we look at the election, I see missed opportunities here. And I really, really hope that we're not going to continue to, to miss those opportunities in the weeks and months following this election. What will it take to be able to heal this nation? I think the first and foremost is going to take humility. I think we're going to have to swallow a lot of pride and enter into spaces that make us feel uncomfortable and unfamiliar. I think we're going to have to swallow pride and openly listen to other people. I think we're going to have to swallow pride and allow our preconceived notions to be challenged. I believe we are going to have to swallow our pride and begin to listen to others who tell us what the next steps for us should be. Because when we decide to descend into communities other than ours, the worst thing we can do is step into that place and already have the answers for how to fix these people. No. We have to step into a place where we humble ourselves, where we pour out ourselves, and we're able to see the humanity in each face that is different than ours. Because if we come to a point where we are able, where we are unable to see the humanity In the other, we are in a very sad state. If you are a Democrat and you are not able to see the humanity in a Republican, something is wrong. If you are a Republican and are unable to see the humanity in a Democrat, something is wrong. And this problem will never be solved. But we need to be able to create spaces for us, for all of us, to be able to collectively come to a table, to be able to have dialogue, to be able to have discussion to find a common ground, to find a commonality between us. Because if we believe that we are created in the image of God, that person that is different than you is still created in the image of God. And you have no right to reject them. Because I believe, first and foremost, that I think that Christians have, be- have come to a place where we would rather grab onto certainty than actually believe that God moves in the world today than actually believe that God can use us to heal the world today. And if we are truly at that state where we cannot see the creator and the other person, all hope is lost. And I will leave you with that thought. If we want difference to happen, if we want change to happen, if we want to heal this rift that has happened in our country, we have to be willing to do the hard work, the messy work, the work that is not instantaneous. We have to learn how to invest our lives into the lives of other people. And that's all I have for us today. We'll be back again next week with more Snarky Faith. I really appreciate you listening. I really appreciate you coming with us along the journey. And just a reminder, as I end this broadcast, that you can always catch us on podcasts at www.snarkyfaith.com. You can also dialogue with us on Facebook and Twitter. Hop on iTunes, give us a good review. We love you guys. If you have any questions, hop on our website and send them over to us. We love them. My hope is that my voice will be fully back for you next week. That's all I got, and I'm out of here.
0: WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com.